Well, good morning. I'm Larry Castle. This is Ken Brown, and we'd like to welcome you to episode 12 of That's a Good Question for August 23rd. Well, Pastor Ken, we have a new topic for this week, and uh, we have both been asked multiple times, I'm sure, over the years, uh, the question of whether or not things like healings and other miracles, the kind of things that you would see on religious television, are happening today like they were in the Bible times. And so we'll, we'll go over questions like that today. And uh, before we do, though, um, you know, I, I understand you've got first-hand experience of this, and so I was thinking it'd be great if you could tell those who are watching a little bit about that background. Well, most of those in our church know, as you do, that I was raised in a Pentecostal home, and so in fact, my be, dad was before you go a Pentecostal on with preacher. That, before you go on okay. with that, can you explain what is Pentecostal, just in case people Okay, know. so yeah, Pentecostal home, and then my dad was a Pentecostal preacher, so so what is that? Well, uh, yeah, I, I probably do need to explain that for some of our viewers. Pentecostal goes back to uh, Acts chapter 2 in the Bible, and there was an amazing event that took place on what's called the Day of Pentecost. Now, the Day of Pentecost goes all the way back to the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, and Pentecost was an annual feast and it took place 50 days after Passover. And that's where the name Pentecost comes from, because Pentecost means 50. Mm -hmm. So when you come to the New Testament, Jesus is crucified Passover weekend. And so the event in Acts chapter 2 is about 50 days after Jesus died on the cross. Now, we'll talk about what actually happened on Pentecost a bit later, but for now, that's why people use the term Pentecostal, because they're pointing back to what happened on this feast day, the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2 in the Bible. So that's very helpful to know then. So your family was one that uh, tr tried to practice these things that we read about happening on the day of Pentecost. Yeah, that's right. Uh, our Pentecostal friends believe that we need to do today things like those that are recorded in Acts 2, and that includes engaging in miraculous displays. So one who is Pentecostal believes that miracles, like we see in Acts chapter 2 and in other places in the Bible, continue today, and they believe that we should seek to, to emulate those. So I was raised in the Pentecostal church, and as a child and a teenager, I saw almost on a weekly basis people being prayed over for healing. And so they would come forward and there would be folks from the church who would gather around them. They would have hands laid on them for healing from various ailments. I would also hear weekly people speaking in tongues. We'll talk later, maybe next week, about that, what speaking in tongues and and I would also hear people prophesy. That is, they would offer words that were said to be directly from the Lord uh, on behalf of the church. They were speaking from the Lord for the benefit of the church. Sometimes they were speaking with a prophecy 
a word from the Lord directly to an individual in the congregation. And so uh, you're no longer, though, Pentecostal. You don't call yourself Pentecostal any longer because you don't believe that the Bible teaches us we should seek to practice those things today, right? Yeah, that's, that, that's right. Uh, not everything that's recorded in the Bible is there for us to emulate today. Now, we need to be careful when we say something like that, that not everything in the Bible is, is for us. Uh, everything in the Bible is for us is one way to think of it, but not everything in the Bible was written directly to us. So everything in the Bible is profitable for us to know and for us to apply the principles that we see in every passage of the Bible. But not every action that we see in the Bible is an action that we're supposed to take today. Hmm. So that that's a really important point. Uh, I mean, as you would imagine, those of you who are watching, that can make a huge difference. So, Pastor Ken, tell us, how do you know which things are directly applicable, we're supposed to seek to practice today, and which things are not? Well, you know, one of the extremely important distinctions that we need to make when we read the Bible is the difference between what the Bible describes and what the Bible prescribes. Hmm. Much of Scripture is, is narrative. And one of the characteristics of narrative that is narrating what was happening in the life of a, someone else or some other group of people, much of the Bible is, is that way. It's, it's a narration of what happened to others. And one of the characteristics of narrative is that it describes the actions of others, but it's not necessarily prescribing those very actions for us. So here's a simple example of that. The book of Acts that we mentioned earlier, that's where the day of Pentecost is mentioned and where the idea of being Pentecostal comes from. In Acts chapter 3, the very first verse says that uh, two of Jesus' first followers, Peter and John, went to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if you read that and you see that everything that folks in the Bible did is supposed to be things that we're supposed to do, then you may say, went to, to go to Jerusalem as well. And so, end up uh, thinking that I need to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Well, if that were the case, you would have a problem because it's hard to get to Jerusalem uh, in, any, uh, in, in any time, especially right now, we're under a, a pandemic and a quarantine and all of that. But as well, Peter and John went to Jerusalem to visit the temple, and there is no temple there. There has not been a temple in Jerusalem since 78 AD. So that's an example of the Bible describing something that others did, but it's not prescribing that action for us to do. That makes that makes good sense. And and uh, I'm sorry, we, we garbled a little bit there. Uh, at oh. the beginning of your answer, but uh, you were you were basically saying that uh, you know there are some things like the going to the temple that's not there anymore uh, yeah. in Jerusalem. It's you know it's not possible, and nobody argues for that. So clearly, we all at some level recognize that that there are portions of the Bible that are more directly applicable to us, right? Yes, as I as I mentioned a bit ago, everything in the Bible is profitable for us to know and also for us to apply. The principles that we find there. 
The Bible says about the Bible that all scripture is useful or all scripture is profitable. So even though Acts chapter 3 is not telling us that we need to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and we need to go to the temple, that passage does, like all passage in the, passages in the Bible, give us principles that we can apply to ourselves. So let's just quickly think about that passage, what happened there, and how we could make a simple application to ourselves. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple in Jerusalem, and Peter heals a man who was at the temple. That man, the Bible says in Acts 3, would sit in the same place every day at the temple, and he would beg for money. But Peter commands him in the name of Christ to get up and walk. And the man is healed. He excitedly goes and he shows others now that he's able to walk. And they're all amazed because they had seen this fellow. They knew him. They saw him at the temple every day for his entire, uh, at least adult life. Uh, he would be there begging and he was unable to walk. And so the crowd approaches Peter and John with great excitement and they treat them like celebrities. And Peter, instead, though, of taking that acclaim for himself, uh, he takes the opportunity to point them to Christ. And so that's a principle that we see throughout Scripture, that, that we should use every blessing, every opportunity, make the most, the Bible says, of every opportunity. So use every blessing, every chance that we get that God provides for us to point people to him. So there are portions of the Bible that you have to treat that way. They're telling us what God did in the lives of other people. But those events contain principles that we should apply to ourselves, even if we're not to do precisely everything it is that they did. And so that's true for these portions of scripture that are narrative portions that I, I mentioned earlier. But you have in the New Testament, over half of it is not narrative but rather it's letters, letters written to Christians and written to, to churches. So these are written to people experiencing many of the same things that Christians and congregations experience today. And the instruction that's given to them then in those letters is often directly applicable to us. So here's a couple of examples. In Philippians uh, chapter two, Philippians is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Philippi. And so we could think of that now as our church, in the case of the one that we lead, Community Bible Church in Trenton, Michigan. We now think of this as instruction for us. And it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. We can see that has very direct applicability to us uh, in any group that we're involved in, but most importantly in God's church, that we need to prefer others uh, above ourselves. And in relationships, there are times where there's going to be tension, there's going to be disagreement, but we defer as much as possible to others. That applied to them, it applies to us. In another passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, Again, that's a letter written to a church in a city called Thessalonica. It says, just very straightforwardly, you should avoid sexual immorality. Well, that's clearly as applicable to them, uh, to us as it was to them. Now, the ways in which 
sexual immorality might tempt someone in Thessalonica hmm. nearly 2,000 years ago, and the way that might happen today are quite different. They didn't have the internet, they didn't have access to all the things we do, but those temptations go all the way back to the beginning of, of human history, and so they're directly applicable to us. Hmm. That's really helpful. So always important to be looking specifically at the context and occasion right. of the text to particularly to, to uh, correctly understand it. Uh, but then it seems you're saying one of the keys then in understanding is does this apply right now? Is is it describing something that's going on today? Uh, so as whether or not we should be performing miracles today, uh, the question is does the context of that happening fit what we are in today. Are there other examples that you can think of uh, like this, things that are not happening today that were happening then? Yeah, you know, our Pentecostal friends, and I said that a couple of times now, mm -hmm. Pentecostal friends, and the reason I do that is one I personally have had for all of my life, uh, friends who are, were, and still are Pentecostal, and I do consider them dear friends and fellow Christians. Uh, but my Pentecostal friends often cite a passage to prove that whatever happened then in biblical times is still supposed to happen now. And the passage that they often cite is Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, Hebrews 13, 8, that says simply this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. But that verse in its context is not saying that Jesus does all the same things today that he did in the past or that he will do in the future, but rather that the truth about him is unchanging. The truth about who he is and what he accomplished was true. It is true. It'll always be true. But it cannot be saying that Jesus does all the same things that he did in the past because, of course, one of the most important things he did in the past was to die on the cross. But he's not doing that today, and he's not going to do that in the future. That was a one-time occurrence. And, in fact, the writer of that very same book, the book of Hebrews, emphasizes that it was a one-time occurrence with the refrain, once for all. Let me just to quote some of the passages in the book of Hebrews that, that say that. Uh, Hebrews 7.27. I was just going to throw in there. I mean, you're what yeah. you're doing right now. I want to just highlight for those of you who are watching is so important. And and you you mentioned it right at the beginning, Pastor Ken. That if you look at it in its context, mm. and I've had um, believers with um, you know a view of something like we're talking about with miracles that doesn't really fit what the Bible teaches uh, defended by looking at small portions rather than an actual message of what the writer's saying, and as well as unbelievers try to point out inconsistencies uh, with Christianity, mm -hmm. but uh, both by not looking specifically, what is this author saying and why are they saying it? So what you're doing right now by walking us through the mm -hmm. context is so crucial. Well, I appreciate you pointing that out because yes, you are right, it is. It keeps us from doing what's called proof texting. Just yes. you know, finding a, a verse and then saying, there, there's my proof. And it may not prove what you're saying if you don't have it in its proper context. And so that absolutely has, has to happen. I have had, uh, this is, I'm a little off script here, but uh, that's, that's I, okay. I have had uh, so many occasions where somebody presents a question or a challenge to what I th think to be sound doctrine. 
And not knowing really what the answer is immediately, I just say, well, let's take a look at what the Bible says. And I've learned to be able to do that with high level of confidence now because if we just go look at what the text says, yes. uh, you'll, find, you'll find it there. It's, I mean, there are some things, the Bible itself says there are sure. some things harder to understand. Yeah. But for the vast majority of things, if you just look at what the text says. Amen. Yeah. Yes. So putting this in context then, this passage that's often quoted that says, we are to do today what happened 2,000 years ago because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It's in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, but it can't mean that, that Jesus does today everything that he did then because he died on the cross 2,000 years ago and he's not doing that today. And the writer of Hebrews in that very book, setting it in context then, goes out of his way to make that point several times that this act of dying on the cross was a once for all act. And so at uh, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 27, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Then in chapter 9 and verse 28, he was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, many. And then a couple of verses just before that, again in chapter 9, verse 25, he did not offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times. But he has appeared, again, notice, once for all to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Mm. And then just one more example from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 10. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So one very obvious example of something that happened in the past that's not happening now is the atonement of Christ on the cross. And so appealing to Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, doesn't mean he needs to die today or in the future like he did 2,000 years ago. In fact, speaking of the future, the Bible teaches that he's going to do things then in the future that he's not doing today, like he's going to return and he's going to establish his kingdom. So my, my good friends who, who say that, who cite a passage like that to say, hey, if he did it then, he's doing it now, uh, it just doesn't follow on a, on a number of bases. Yeah, that's good. That's great. Um, so he's going to return in the future, that especially we, we know he's going to return in the future and do things then that he's not doing now. So can right. you think of uh, other things in the Bible that um, were happening at that time that are not happening today? Give us examples. Yeah, so there are uh, a number of these, and one really important one that, in fact, we all agree on, including our Pentecostal friends, that has ceased, that's no longer happening today, is Scripture and the writing mm. of Scripture. Yep. Scripture is not being written. That has stopped, and it stopped nearly 2,000 years ago. The last book of the Bible was written in 95 AD, the, the last book, Revelation, the book of Revelation, written in 95 AD. 
So we're going on almost 2,000 years ago now. Now, none of us believe, including Pentecostals, that a book could be added to the Bible today. And all of the Pentecostals I'm aware of believe that just as, just as we do. So we all believe that there's at least something that was happening in the past that has now stopped. And then I've already mentioned that Christ dying on the cross was something that happened then that's not recurring. Now, the reason the writing of scripture has stopped is related to why some other things have also ceased. And that is namely that the apostles wrote and oversaw the production of the New Testament, hmm. the scriptures. Critical point, yeah. They were uniquely qualified to do that. And they're all dead. They're all gone. Mm -hmm. Therefore, no books of the Bible can be added because the people who could write them are no longer here. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really a critical point. You know, they're they're uniquely qualified, you said. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you explain to those who are watching who the apostles are and why are they uniquely qualified? You know, it's just so very important that if we want to understand the Bible and we want to understand Jesus' plan for his church, his plan for giving us the scriptures and for the future, if we're going to understand that well, we need to understand this unique role that these men that we call the apostles had. The apostles are Christ's specially chosen and authorized representatives. Now, we sometimes refer to Jesus' first followers as the 12 disciples. But I go out of my way when I'm referring to that group of men that Jesus spent three years with teaching and training and preparing to carry out the work he had for them. I go out of my way to call them, as the Bible does, the 12 apostles. And the reason I do that is it emphasizes their unique role. Because every Christian is a disciple. You're a disciple. I'm a disciple. Everybody who belongs to Jesus is a follower, a learner of Christ. That's what a disciple is. But not every Christian is an apostle. In fact, as we're going to see here in a little bit, there are no more, more apostles today, and there haven't been for nearly, nearly 2,000 years. Now, how are they unique? You know, they're unique beyond just having a different name, a different title, apostle. What is it that that entitles one to have that title of apostle? Well, that uniqueness is seen in a number of ways in the New Testament. One, you know that you're in a special group of people when you can be referred to in passages in the Bible just as the 12. <laughs> the Bible many times just refers to them as the 12. And people are expected to know who's being referred to. That shows you how special and exclusive this group was. And then later, most of you know the, the story that, that one of the original apostles, Judas Iscariot, was not a true follower of Christ. And he showed that he was not uh, a follower of Christ when he betrayed him. And he ended up committing suicide, Judas did. So now there were 11, and the Bible then refers to them as the 11. Hmm. And then, as we're going to see in a little bit, they went about replacing Judas with another apostle, and they became the 12 again. So one way you see their uniqueness is just in what they're called. They were called the 12, and then the 11, and then, then the 12. And then their qualifications. In order to be an apostle, 
you had to be someone who had seen Christ resurrected because part of their mission was to now go out. Jesus commissioned them to go out, spread the good news. And that good news included the crucial fact that Christ had died, but that he had raised. He was alive and that they had seen him eyewitnesses to his resurrection. Now you see this as a necessary qualification in Acts chapter one, Acts chapter one. Judas has committed his betrayal. He has committed suicide. The 11 now gather and they are finding a, designating a replacement for Judas. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter one in verse 22, that in finding a replacement, they said it has to be someone who can be a witness along with us of his resurrection. Someone who has been with us the, the whole time hmm. and has been able to see the works of Jesus, including that he's alive. And they chose a man named Matthias who fit that criteria. Later, you have the apostle Paul called to be an apostle by Christ himself. The risen Lord appears to Paul in Acts chapter 9. And Paul, in later defending the fact that he's an apostle, Paul had some people who were saying he's, uh, he's not who he claims to be. We don't need to follow his authority. And in defending the fact that he had apostolic authority, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1, 1 Corinthians 9, 1, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the risen Lord. So in both the case of Matthias and in the case of Paul, you see that it was an absolute qualification in order to be an apostle, that you had to be someone who had seen Christ raised from the dead. And of course, we have no one who fits that qualification today. And then the abilities that they were given by Christ are also unique. They were able to write scripture and mm -hmm. oversee the writing of scripture. Now, when did Christ do that? The night before he was crucified. The Bible has a section in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapters 14, excuse me, chapters 13 through 17. John 13 through 17. And those five chapters are all talking about what happened on one night, the night before Christ was crucified. And beginning in chapter 14 through chapter 16 of John, Jesus is preparing these men for what's going to transpire now. And he says that when I am gone, I'm not going to leave you uh, on your own, but rather I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, John chapter 14 and verse 26, is going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've said to you. Hmm. Now, you, you think about that. In that, what's called the upper room discourse, that they're in an upper room, the 12 of them, that's where the Last Supper took place. That's where Jesus washed the feet of the apostles. Many of you will remember that. But then he gives this teaching and he's preparing them with the Holy Spirit is going to come. And he says to this select group of people that you are going to be given this ability to have perfect recall of what I've said. Hmm. I don't have that. I've been in church my entire 58 years, literally. And I've been in Sunday school and I went to a Christian school and I've had to memorize lots of verses over the years. And sometimes I can remember them and sometimes I can't. <laughs> I don't have perfect recall and none of us do. But they were given the ability to have perfect recall. Why? Because they were going to commit to writing the things that Christ 
Christ said and, and just, tell just that really to others quickly, who are committed to writing. Yes. Uh, this highlights, again, context, because I've had uh, a number of people um, right. when talking about that passage assume that that means all Christians, but, but they're not being really precise when they look at what's exactly. promised there. They're thinking more of, it'll help you remember the verse you need when your coworker asks you about right. Christianity. And they're not thinking about to whom it's said. Yeah. You know, who was, who was there in the upper room? It's, it's the 12. Right. And Jesus is giving this promise to them. And so John 14, 26, he's going to bring to your remembrance everything I've commanded you. In John chapter 16, same night, same discourse, he's teaching about the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, he says, he, the Holy Spirit, is going to guide you into all truth. So they were given this special ability. They also had the ability to heal people on command. That's why that passage we talked about earlier, Acts chapter 3, Peter and John see this man who has been crippled for his entire life. He's asking for money. Peter says to him, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And this guy gets up and walks. And it's, it's not based on this guy's ability. It's not based on this guy's belief. It's based upon the ability that the apostles had been given to do that. They were able to raise people from the dead. The book of Acts, Peter raises from the dead a teenage girl. Paul raises from the dead a man who had died somewhat humorously. We can we can laugh about it, but he <laughs> dies in a in a service where Paul's preaching for a long time. Makes me feel good about my long-winded sermons that he, he preached so yeah, long that I haven't guy, killed anyone yet. <laughs> haven't killed anybody with my preaching, I don't think. And he this guy fell out a window and died, and Paul's able to resurrect this guy. But you know, all of the people who are claiming to be able to be healers and all of that, none of them can do what the apostles did. Heal on command, quite apart from the person's faith. I mean, think about a dead person. How much faith do they have? Of course, none. <laughs> they have nothing to do with it. And so it's the ability of the apostle to be able to do that. And then finally, their purpose, the purpose that the apostles were given was to establish the church. The Bible says that Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, quote, the church is built upon the foundation of the prophet's and apostles. It's built upon that foundation with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. When we look at the book of Acts, where Pentecost is recorded, and so where Pentecostalism comes from, but that very book, the full title of that book is The Acts of the Apostles. And as you read through the that book, I just encourage you, as you read through those 28 chapters, look at the central role that these men played. It talks there multiple times about signs and wonders, miracles that were done at the hands of the apostles, that the apostles were carrying, leading the church, establishing churches, but they were all also able to perform these signs and wonders. Just almost done here, but another passage in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, a very, I think, important passage in this regard, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul again, is defending the fact that he is an apostle. And he says there that the signs of an apostle, that's the mm. phrase he uses, the signs of an apostle were done among you, that he performed these things, that, that prove that he has the credentials that he claims to have. The book of Hebrews, again, Hebrews 2, uh, verses 3 and 4, let me read for you what it says. 
It says, this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So nearly all of the 27 books of the New Testament were written by apostles, and then the few that were not written by apostles, like Mark, the Gospel of Mark, or the Gospel of Luke, both Mark and Luke were direct associates of the apostles. So they got their information from those who had this perfect, perfect recall. So they could do things that simply we, we cannot because the Bible describes what they did then. It doesn't mean that it's prescribing that we do that. The apostles could do stuff that we were never intended to do. So some of those things that they did that we cannot do that, that have ceased, that are no longer happening. One, there is no more apostleship. Sometimes you will hear then of someone calling themselves apostle so-and-so. Mm -hmm. That's not using the term properly because it's only for those who have seen the risen Lord. That was a limited number of, of people. So yes, the flyer I got on my car the other day at Target <laughs> does not qualify them. Okay. No, no. I'm doesn't. not joking about that. <laughs> oh, well, and what, yeah, yeah, lots of people doing that using the term. But, you know, as one more proof that of this special group, when you get to the end of uh, human history and you have the New mm -hmm. Jerusalem in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14, Revelation 21 and verse 14, it talks about the New Jerusalem, the dimensions of the city. And it talks about the foundation having 12 sides on the foundation mm. on which are written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay, so the guy who put the flyer on your, his name's not on there, he right? Got no, yeah, he got this no is stone a, in the foundation. <laughs> so, apostleship has ceased, the writing of scripture has ceased, and I would argue that the signs of an apostle, therefore, have ceased mm. as well. Yeah, good. So that, that's all really, really important foundational information for this subject. And uh, so that's great. But um, let's talk about how this then relates to uh, whether or not we should see, expect to see miracles today. You know, you, depending on your level of familiarity with scripture, how much of it you really had an opportunity to digest, um, you might assume that back in Bible times, miracles were happening all the time. So why shouldn't we expect to see them today? Yeah, that's something you hear a lot. You and I have mm -hmm. both heard that, that folks think that, you know, in the Bible, that miracles were just happening one after another, but it surprises people to learn, you know, that's really not the case. Mm -hmm. Even in the time of the Bible, miracles only happened in certain eras, just a, just a handful of times, actually. God has a plan in his dealings with humanity, but that plan does not happen to include a constant repetition of the same kinds of miracles in every time and place. If that were his plan, think about this, then miracles would lose their unique sign mm. value because they would be taken for, for granted. They're designed mm. to be unusual and they're designed to be out of the, the norm. And God has wisely protected the importance, the significance of miracles by having them happen on rare occasions, rare occasions even in Bible times. Enoch. Enoch was someone in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, who was taken directly into heaven without having died. Obviously, that's an unusual thing. But that was the only miracle in over 1,700 years between Adam 
and the flood. That's mm. the only one. Yeah. For centuries, Israel was in Egypt, and they had no special revelation from, from God. Only rarely did a miracle occur during the centuries from Joshua all the way to King David. And God protected the uniqueness of Jesus' miraculous ministry by withholding miracles for centuries before that. Even John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ uh, himself, did not perform uh, these kinds of miracles. And so the miracles of Christ now, when he comes, there's been this dearth of the miraculous for centuries. And he, he comes and he is able to command the waves and the wind, and he's able to command demons, and he's able to heal people on command, showing that he is indeed the promised Messiah. So you certainly have an explosion now of the miraculous with, with Christ, and then in the early years of the apostles. And those miracles of Christ and those miracles of the apostles were, according to the Bible, designed to point to who they were. John chapter 20, John chapter 20 and verse 30, at the end of the Gospel of John, John, one of the apostles, writes this book about the earthly ministry of Jesus. And he says, he picks out seven signs. So if you go through the Gospel of John, you find that he has seven miracles in particular that he's picked out to elaborate on that point to who Jesus is. But then he gets to the end, John chapter 20 and verse 30. And he says, Jesus performed many other signs, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have a life in his name. And so these miracles of Jesus were signs pointing to him being the Messiah. And then the same thing for the apostles now. Jesus gives them the ability to do this, to be his special representatives of the, as they go out into the world. And we read Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4 a bit ago. It says, God testified to the message of the apostles by signs, wonders, and various miracles. So one scholar has said it this way. If supernatural signs were intended to serve as confirmations of God's special messengers and their message, then it seems obvious that those signs would no longer be needed after these messengers had brought that message. That's uh, that's really uh, well put. And, you know, as I listen to you give that explanation, I, I think of um, how the way we tend to digest God's word can contribute to this. You know, we, we read the most exciting parts. We're taught mm -hmm. about them in Sunday school. So it can give that impression. And then also we don't have a ton of background knowledge often to know the date ranges you shared with us that are not all of them are written right in the text. You know, you've got to know right. some of the historical context. So yeah. that's good. But I, I can also hear folks saying, uh, but didn't Jesus say greater works mm. than I have done, you will do? So how do you mm. answer that? He did. And I've been asked that question a lot of times over the years. And just uh, knowing where that saying is located from Jesus is, is going to be helpful. Because we've already mentioned the upper room discourse, the night before Jesus died, that you have these five chapters, John 13 through 17, that are all on that one night. Well, that uh, quotation from Jesus, uh, with him saying that, that my followers, the apostles, are going to do greater works than, than I did, that's in John chapter 14. Hmm. It's right in the midst of this whole upper room discourse. Where he's talking to whom? He's talking to the, the apostles. So it's in John chapter 14 and 
verse 12. And he says there, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Let me as quickly as I can just explain what, what that is. Remember, he's talking to the apostles. So the whoever believes in me is the whoever among them, among this group. Mm -hmm. Now, you might say, well, we already know all of them are going to believe. No. <laughs> Remember, mm -hmm. one of them is going to betray him that night. Yeah. And so he's 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 making that point. Those of you who believe in me, you are going to go forward and you're going to to do these things. One. Then Jesus talks about you're going to be able to do this because I'm going to the Father. Now what is what is him going to the Father have to do with them being able to do these works? Well, in this whole evening he's telling them, "Yes, I'm leaving, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit." And so it's going to be through the Holy Spirit that you're going to be able to do these greater these greater works. You guys are going to be able to do what I've been doing. The healings, the signs, the miracles, and we see that in the ministry of the apostles. But greater work doesn't mean you're going to do more healings and more of that. No, you're going to do a qualitatively different be involved in a qualitatively different kind of greater work. And I want to quote for you what I think is just a, a terrific uh, explanation of that. Uh, this is from John Whitcomb. John Whitcomb has written about these issues of the miraculous and, you know, the miracles in the Bible and whether they're for today. We've got a little booklet in our resource center by John Whitcomb on this that I highly recommend. But he says this, the work, the works that Jesus performed during his public ministry were fantastically great. Diseases were banished. Demons were cast out, dead men arose, wine, bread, and fishes were created, mighty storms were instantly calmed. But it must be recognized that each of these miracles was intentionally superficial and temporary in quality. In other words, no one was permanently helped by any of them. <laughs> Nor were men's deepest needs met by these works of power. Creating food for one occasion didn't automatically supply the need for later occasions. And with regard to bodily ailments, every diseased, crippled, leprous person that Jesus ever healed finally died anyway, every one of them. And poor Lazarus, it's true that Jesus raised him from the dead instantly and completely with no convalescence needed, but later on he died. Would you like to die twice? <laughs> he says, <laughs> when Christ raises your body someday, would you want it to be raised to mortal life again? That was certainly no favor to Lazarus, nor was that intended to be. It was instead a mere temporary and limited sign of Christ's power to do the greater work of resurrection to glory in the day of the Lord. So in that light, our Lord's words take on new meaning. You're going to do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Can there be any greater works than the miracles of Jesus? And Whitcomb says, yes, there can and there are. When our Lord returned to heaven, the Spirit of God came 10 days later on the day of Pentecost and baptized the disciples into the body of Christ. Peter then arose, preached a sermon to a vast multitude of Jews. 3,000 men experienced the spiritual miracle of regeneration in one day. This is the greater work because it met man's basic need and met it permanently. Let it be remembered that our Lord's purpose in coming to earth was not to preach the Christian gospel, but to make that preaching possible. 
If he didn't die as our substitute for sin, there would be no gospel. But since his death, his resurrection, his ascension, pastors, evangelists, missionaries have won more men to saving faith than the Son of God did. And physical miracles have not been the cause of that success. Hmm. For a few years, the apostles and the prophets did those lesser works like Jesus, the sign miracles, and the greater works, winning men to saving faith. But as the age of the apostles reached its close, then those lesser works, the sign miracles phased out, the greater works continue as God's basic program for the church age until Jesus comes again. That's that's awesome. And uh, I, I think, think so. Yeah, that's an awesome way to end because this topic, it looks like, is going to take us uh, two weeks. <laughs> so, um, you know, we'll we'll have a chance next week now to get into, I think, some specifics, things like, all right. So in light of all that we've said today, um, does he does God still heal people today? Um, mm. And, you know, uh, what do we think about the faith healer on television? Is he, you know, is he intentionally deceiving people? Um, how do I, how do I interact with those who believe these things? And, um, you know, uh, one of the probably most common questions related to this is what about tongues speaking for today? So we'll save those for next week. And uh, just remind everybody at home who's watching, if you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can get it to us in a couple of ways. I'll mention them in the, uh, at the uh, end credits here uh, about our email address and, and uh, texting that into us. And I just want to remind you, if you are watching this and haven't already, to uh, go to our Facebook page and follow us there so that when new content comes out, you're aware of it. You can also go to our YouTube channel and hit subscribe and hit the notification bell there. And we'll, uh, we'll get you updates that way of everything that comes out. And then one last thing that's new in the last couple of weeks, if you use our Church Center app, um, sermons and audio like this podcast are now available inside of the Church Center app. So uh, check that out. Go into the app if you haven't in a while. Look at the sermons tab. You can actually watch this next week straight from that app. And uh, Pastor Ken, as always, thank you for taking the time to think through and study this subject and to uh, share your knowledge of God's Word on it. And uh, that's it for this week. We'll see you next time. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com, or text it to us at 97000.